Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he forgets himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I'm going to give you just a quick review since it's been a little while. Um, we have covered not much of the book of James because we've been taking our time. Uh, things will quickly speed up as we get into the next couple chapters. But setting the foundations has been an important exercise. So we saw in the first uh, section, which runs roughly from verse 1 uh, through maybe verse 12 or so, there's some discussion about how we break up the book. But that first maybe 10 or so verses, James introduces his letter to the Jews that are in the dispersion. So we're, we're most likely talking about Jewish Christians who have fled the persecution in Jerusalem and now live primarily in uh, the rest of uh, the promised land and then out into the wider area. But we're talking primarily about Jewish Christians. This is a very early letter. It probably predates many of James's uh, uh, Paul's letters. And most likely it is prior to the Council of Jerusalem, which happened, depending on who you look at, sometime in the 50s maybe. Uh, in his letter, he promises these suffering Christians who are often facing persecution that God will provide wisdom to them if all they do is ask in faith, and that this is particularly true in the midst of their trials. Because of this promise, James argues that we can be joyful in the midst of those trials because God will ultimately use them to bring us to perfection. Well, the, the theological term we use is will sanctify them. In the next section, he continues to ground our ability to remain joyful in these trials because God rewards those who persevere until the end. And the only thing that comes from God in the midst of these trials is actually the trials themselves, which brings about blessings of wisdom and maturity. Any temptation to sin or to give in to these trials that we feel comes from our own wickedness, from our own desires, which are born out of a sinful heart. And the reason for this is that God is unchanging. Because he is unchanging, he always remains perfectly and eternally pure and holy. And so James says he cannot be tempted by evil. That brings us to today's text, which continues the theme of perseverance, but it actually starts to take a, a shift towards the practical. So James has very much remained in the theoretical realm. He's talked, made theological concepts like divine uh, unchangeableness or immutability is the term we would use. There's, there's elements of sovereignty, divine, um, divine uh, oversight over creation. He even starts to talk a little bit about how God has regenerated us out of his own sovereign election. But he moves towards the practical today. And in this section, there are roughly three things he focuses on. 
First, he focuses on how we receive the word. Second, he focuses on what it looks like to hear and do the word and how important that is. And lastly, he talks about what it looks like to demonstrate to the world that you have received that world, that word, or to demonstrate to the world and to other Christians that you have not received that word. So that's our outline for today. We, we're going to look at how we receive the word, how we hear and do the word, and then how we demonstrate the word. So take a quick look. This first section of receiving the word is going to run roughly from verse 19 into 21. And it reads, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So James starts this section out uh, with a command. The phrase, know this, is actually an imperative word. Now, this is sort of weird because you're not usually commanded to know something. It's sort of a strange concept. But it would be similar if um, if you, one of you was chastising your children when they were younger and you kind of got their eye contact and you said, now listen up. That's something very important to tell you. It's not just process this information and have it in your head. It's now you're accountable for knowing this. I'm commanding you to know this knowledge. So the, the, the person who is hearing this letter read would immediately kind of perk up. Now, keep in mind, these are Jewish Christians. Another place that we see a command uh, to know or to hear is sort of the most famous confession of faith that the uh, Israel, uh, Israelites had, right? Deuteronomy 6.4, it's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord your God is one. The Lord is God. The Lord your God is one. So this command to listen or to perk up or to hear or to know is a, a common way to introduce a new topic. And it puts a, a level of emphasis and importance on it that just saying, okay, now I'm talking about something else. There are other ways to do that in Greek. It puts a, a certain kind of emphasis on it. So we should perk up in our seats. We should pay careful attention to this. Now, the question has to be asked and the, the commentaries and Christian tradition is divided about who, who is it that we are hearing and, and who is it that we're speaking to? And roughly speaking, there are two basic options. We could be talking about hearing and speaking to other Christians, right? So in this perspective, we'd be looking at this as a uh, sort of a command to take time to consider what other people have to say, to not be so quick to speak that we disregard what they have to say. In modern parlance, we might call this active listening, right? You make eye contact, you, you don't stop and think about what you're saying next while they're talking, you let them speak. There's some good strength to this perspective. Uh, this kind of statement and discussions about careful listening and the importance of listening rather than speaking and speaking deliberately and carefully is a very common theme in Jewish wisdom literature. We see that both in the Bible. Um, one example is in Proverbs 27, 28, which reads, whoever restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. So you can see that theme that this, this insistence of speaking rather than taking time to listen is a common theme. And there's all sorts of other Proverbs. And it's also common in non-biblical wisdom literature as well from that period. So there's good reasons to believe this view. I think when we're looking at James himself, we're looking at this letter itself, there's better reasons right within the book of James 
to think that this is talking about instead hearing the word of God and then not talking back to the word of God, to let the word of God be definitive for your life and not to push back against it, right? A good principle of biblical interpretation is that the closest text is more important for understanding this than text that's further away. So we'll take a look at some of the specifics here, but in the beginning of this, there's all sorts of talk about the word of God. Following this, there's all sorts of talk about the word of God. And then right in the middle of this, we have this command to hear and to listen, right? So that immediate context probably takes priority over further remote context like Proverbs or even further remote context uh, like extra biblical Jewish literature. So take a quick peek back at verse 18, just to kind of demonstrate what I'm, I'm saying here. Verse 18 is the end of that previous section. And then it says, of his own will, he brought forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So it makes sense to me, and this is the argument that most of the commentaries make, it makes sense to me that if the next, uh, the next command is a command to hear, that the word that was just presented in the text is probably what we're expected to hear. To sort of further bolster that, when we go down into, into the rest of the book, in the rest of this section, there's still more conversation about hearing and obeying and receiving the word of God. So instead of understanding this as having a, you know, a, a good interpersonal relationship with other people, which is a, a perfectly biblical and admirable thing to do, um, we should understand this command as allowing this word, which has brought us forth to salvation by the power of the Holy Spirit, to, to affect us and change us and not talk back to it, not be quick to respond to the word of God in a negative sense. And the reason for this is that he says that uh, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, this is a little bit of a strange translation. Um, it's a fine translation. The word, uh, the Greek word is commonly translated as anger, but it's a particular kind of anger. It's not, uh, it's not that sort of seething anger that you don't do anything about. It's an active anger. It comes from the word to reach out and take something. So if you're, if you're experiencing this kind of anger, it's an anger that is set on something, is attempting to take it, and can't quite reach it. Aristotle, uh, in one of his works, defines this as uh, desire with grief. So it's kind of this unactualized desire that you can't quite get at. And so we shouldn't think uh, that he's saying, um, you know, if you're angry at people, that doesn't, doesn't um, produce the righteousness of God. We know that it doesn't produce the righteousness of God. There's all sorts of other biblical passages that teach that ungodly anger is a sin. Instead, we should understand this more along the lines of you don't get saved by wanting it, even if you really, really want it, even if you passionately want it. That might be another way to translate this, this noun or this verb here is the passionate desire of man does not uh, create or cause the righteousness of God. So the question has to be asked, what does produce the righteousness of God? Now, we're all good Protestant Christians who tend to be a little bit Calvinistic. So I think we could all say, well, the righteousness of God is received because it's Christ's righteousness that is received through faith. And so we see that even in this previous section in verse 18, that it is the word of truth that brings us forth. And that's what makes us the first fruits of his creatures. Question 30 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism 
uh, reads like this. It says, how does the spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? And the catechism answers, the spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. So James continues and he says, therefore, because the passionate desire of man does not produce the righteousness of God, therefore, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, this word save here, um, in our sort of post-Reformation uh, context, we hear the word salvation, we immediately jump to the concept of justification. And there's really good reasons to do that. But in the, in the biblical sense, the word salvation here probably more refers to the final outcome. So James here isn't talking about justification. He's not talking about the initial um, coming into a right relationship with God. He's talking about the ongoing process of being transformed into the image of Christ and then ultimately the, the glorification of the believer on the last day. Um, we can know that because the, the verb tenses, I won't get into all the details. These are all past tense. Receiving the implanted word is a present tense. We continue to receive it, but uh, being able to save is a past tense. So we continue to receive the word, having already been saved is the, the sense of this. And then with a, uh, an idea that that salvation continues to change and transform us into the future. And we do this by receiving uh, in humility, the implanted word. So this word implanted is sometimes translated as innate, and it's used that way in some Greek literature, but it's really a word that has to do with agriculture. Uh, the word is related to seeds. It's a farming metaphor. So the, the picture here is that the word that we receive with meekness is like a seed that God has planted in our hearts. It's a seed that God has planted inside of us. And as it's fostered by the Holy Spirit, it's caused to grow. And as long as we receive it in humility, we continue to receive it in humility. God does his work, which yields transformation and righteousness. So turn over with me to Mark chapter four. I could have picked a number of passages. This is the parable of the sower. Uh, so it's present in all of the synoptic gospels. So you could go to Matthew and read this. You could go to Luke and read this, but it's more or less the same in each of the passages. So Mark chapter four, we're going to read verses one through nine. Again, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat, uh, sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them in many things in parables. And in this teaching, he said, listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, "Him, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, Jesus goes on and explains this parable to explain that the three kinds of uh, results that uh, did not result in a, a crop were a result of the kind of soil, right? Some of them are, it's a superficial planting. And so it's near the surface. And so there's no roots So the sun or he associates that with tribulation. That 
that sort of chokes it out or it, it burns away. Um, the thorns that are there are the cares of this world, the desire for rich riches. But the point is that the difference between the seed that grows and produces a crop and the seed that does not grow is not found in the nature of the seed. It's found in the nature of the soil and the context into which the seed is, is sown. So it's important for us to understand that receiving the seed with meekness, what James is talking about, is equivalent to what um, Jesus is talking about when he says good soil, which is, we'll see uh, a theme here that's going to pop up. Turn over to Romans 10 and um, verse 14. This will be a very familiar passage to you, so we'll probably move fairly quickly through it. Romans 10, verses 14 through 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who have preached the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, it's, it's definitely the case that reading the scriptures in your own private devotions has a benefit. And it's something we should all strive to do. But what, what Paul is saying here in Romans is that the preaching of the word, and I would add as a bit of theological commentary, particularly on the Lord's day, is central to understanding how it is we grow in Christ. So we, we should and can and must, we're commanded to read the word, to digest the word, to meditate on the word in our private individual lives. But what Paul is really focusing on here is that for salvation. And in Paul's view here, he's talking about justification, but it really expands to all that the word does. Salvation is, is encompassed justification, sanctification, glorification, all of what the word does in our lives. Paul is rooting that here in the preached proclaimed word. How then will they hear without someone preaching? So when we take that back to James, James is, and this is a theme of his letter, He's teaching them, don't abandon the gathering together of the saints. Don't abandon the preaching of the word on the Lord's day, because that's how we are quick to hear and slow to speak. That's how we receive the word, which is implanted in us with humility. We sit under the teaching of the scriptures in the assembly of the saints that God has called together. This is not to say that there's never a reason to miss gathered worship. There is. I mean, our pastor's not here. So obviously it's okay to miss gathered worship. And there are times when we're traveling, but it's important for us to make ourselves diligent to be in the assembly of the saints. Maybe that means you have to find a church while you're on vacation. Or maybe it means you find a good sermon that you can listen to that is delivered by a local congregation that you can find online. There's all sorts of ways to do this, but it's important that we need to recognize reading the Bible in our private devotions is not a substitute for hearing the word preached and expounded on the Lord's day. 
we see in other parts of the Bible, we won't, we won't turn there, um, but, but we see in other parts of the Bible that there's this reference to the word being implanted in us, dwelling within us, living within us. Probably the most famous reference comes in Jeremiah 31, where the, the delivery of the promise of the new covenant, which um, I, uh, Jeremiah speaking for the Lord says, will not be like the covenant made with uh, the original people of Israel, with Moses and, and his immediate context, because the word will be written on our hearts. The word will be impressed upon us, written on our hearts, will be implanted into us. In Deuteronomy 30, um, uh, verses 11 through 14, Moses, in kind of his farewell sermon to the people of Israel, says to them that the word is not far from them. It's not in the heavens, so someone has to go up there and bring it down. It's not across the sea, so someone has to go get it, but it's near us. It's in our hearts. It's in our mouths. And he says, so that you may do it. Now we know that not everybody who has the word does the word. And that's a major part of what we're going to talk about next. But it is not the case that a Christian is not able to obey the law. We can't do it perfectly, but Christians have the Holy Spirit. And to say that the Holy Spirit has regenerated us, that has given us new life, that that new life somehow lies dormant, that's what Paul says, God forbid. When, when someone, the hypothetical person says, should we sin that grace abounds? Paul's answer is not really a long theological treatise on the intricacies of that question. Paul's answer is, that's a stupid question. Of course you don't sin because you're not sinners anymore. You've got a new principle of life in you and that life is going to do what life does. It's going to live. And the life that the Holy Spirit gives us lives out in a life of righteousness. Turn briefly over to Hebrews. And the, the reason I'm going to Hebrews here is because I want to demonstrate something that's going to be important for us when we get uh, a little bit further down in the letter in the coming weeks. If you think back to the very first sermon that we did on this, I talked a little bit about how there's Jewish Christianity, which we might think of as sort of the early Christian tradition, and then there's sort of Gentile Christianity, which is primarily seen in the New Testament in the letters of Paul. And so when we look at Christian literature in the Bible that came from sort of that Jewish part of Christianity, there's a shared set of metaphors and a shared set of language and terms are used in a certain way. That's not always the same. It's not always different, but it's usually not the same as the way it's being used in um, Gentile Christianity, which Paul is the main representative again. And so an example of this uh, that we'll get to is um, James says that we are not justified by uh, faith apart from works, which is 100% opposite from what uh, a surface level reading of what Paul says. And so the, the uncritical thinker looks at that and goes, well, they must be saying totally different things. See, the Bible is totally pointless. But if we understand that terms are being used differently, then that knot just kind of unties itself. And so take a look at um, Hebrews chapter six, which is what we read for our meditation today. And I'm going to focus in here on verses four through eight. It says, um, for it is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the world of the word of God and, and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again, the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now that passage is a scary passage and, and some somewhere along the line, we'll have to talk about that. Um, because of that theme will come up again in, in the book of James. But 
to just demonstrate this principle I'm trying to call out, keep reading in verse seven here. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop is useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So what's the difference between the two outcomes here? Same rain falls on the land. Same word of God was received. In certain senses, the same Holy Spirit. There was the same common operation of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about people probably inside of the church. So the common blessings of the Holy Spirit are experienced by both groups. The difference is the type of soil, right? When one, uh, one part of the land produces crops and one part produces thorns, it's probably not the case that there was a different water. There was different rain. The soil may not even be all that different, but it probably is a little bit different. What is different too, though, is the kind of seed that's implanted and how the seed is implanted, right? If you bury a, a crop and you bury it at the wrong depth, it doesn't sprout the way it's supposed to. I'm not a farmer, but I've done a little bit of gardening in the past. If you bury it too deep, it doesn't sprout. You bury it too close to the surface, it can't survive the sun, it gets dried out. So this principle that there's a, there's a word or a seed that is put in the ground and that the difference between how that seed comes out is the soil or sometimes the kind of seed or sometimes the reception of the seed. It's this common theme that comes up in this Jewish Christianity. And it goes all the way back into the book of Isaiah. When we come back to this in the future, we'll dig into that a little bit more. And this is going to be really important when we uh, come back to chapter two, is that James is not talking about justification. He's not talking about the way that we come into a right relationship with God. He's talking about how it is that we demonstrate that we are in a right relationship with God. And the way that we demonstrate that is by increasing sanctification, which works itself out in good works that are visible and demonstrable to the world. This is going to be really important when we come to chapter two, especially the end. So moving on to the portion of the section here where it says, uh, talks about hearing and doing the word. So we've, we've now understood that the difference uh, in the outcome has to do with the kind of soil, the kind of seed, that, the way that it's implanted. So what does that difference look like? What does that crop that is yielded that Jesus talks about, that the book of Hebrews talks about, what does that crop look like? So turning back to James 1, starting in verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James is arguing against this idea that we can be passive hearers in a way that results in no transformation. So it, he's arguing against the idea that someone can come into the service every Sunday, can hear the word preached, um, can do their Bible study, can listen to sermons and theological podcasts and read good Christian books and have nothing happen and can live exactly the way they did before, uh, before they claimed the name of Christ. He's basically saying that's an incoherent nonsense kind of a thing. So going back to the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, I think 
understanding what sanctification is, is really helpful. And there's a lot of confusion out there. So question 35 of the shorter catechism says, what is sanctification? The answer is sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Right? So that's that idea is, although we don't do it purpose um, uh, perfectly, we're enabled more and more. So it shows you that's a progressive enabling. We're enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. And this transformation is in the whole man, in every part of us. Right? So we're, we're familiar with the concept of total depravity, which is uh, a theological concept that there's no part of the human person prior to conversion that is not affected by sin. It's referring to the scope of the effect, not the depth. It's not talking that we're all as bad as we possibly can be. It's saying that every part of us has some taint and corruption of sin. Sanctification is precisely reversing that. It's not that we're as sanctified as we could be, but that every part of us has been changed and transformed. Our bodies are changed and transformed. Our physical desires are changed and transformed. Our whole person, our spirit, our soul, our bodies, our thinking, everything is transformed. And it is then brought in this process to closer and closer perfection until finally when Jesus comes back, he finishes that process and we become glorified. A person who hears the word but does not change as a result, has not and is not receiving the word with meekness, and they have not and are not putting away all filthy and rampant wickedness. So the very thing that James says we are to do as a result of the fact that our desires do not produce salvation, do not produce righteousness, the very thing we're commanded to do, we can't do unless there's transformation. It's not the transformation that causes it, but if there's no transformation, we know that this hasn't happened. We know that justification has not happened if there's no transformation. Not because that transformation causes justification, but because the thing that causes justification is God's work in our lives. It's the free offer and free implanting of new life. It's the being brought forth by the word of truth and being the first fruits of his creatures. That's what causes the transformation. So if that hasn't happened, then that hasn't happened. If the transformation hasn't happened, then the bringing brought forth hasn't happened. A somewhat, um, maybe a little embarrassing example, but one that I've found in the past trying to explain this works really well, is when a woman takes a pregnancy test, if it's positive, let's pretend it's 100% accurate, then we know with 100% certainty that a pregnancy has occurred. And if it's negative, then we know with 100% certainty that the pregnancy has not occurred. But no one in their right mind would say that the pregnancy test is what caused the pregnancy. We could say this woman is pregnant because she had a pregnancy test, a positive pregnancy test. That's a valid sentence. But the word because there is doing something different. It's not the grounding of the pregnancy. It's the evidence of the pregnancy. That's what James is getting at here. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, in a couple weeks in chapter two. So James, to explain this, uses a metaphor, and this is uh, an argument from the lesser to the greater. So he starts off with kind of a ridiculous situation, and then he moves to the greater, uh, greater situation to demonstrate equally how ridiculous that is. So he talks about a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. This is not a casual glance. In other places in the New Testament, this word is translated as consider. So when um, Jesus is um, talking about 
consider the ravens, consider the birds, how the, they they don't sow, they don't reap, yet they always have enough food. Consider the lilies of the field. They don't, they don't buy clothes, but they're always arrayed in splendor. That makes Solomon look a little shabby, right? It's this intentional contemplation and pondering. That's what the man is doing in the mirror. So picture yourself standing in front of a mirror and examining every portion of your face, making sure everything is, is the way it's supposed to be, and then forgetting all about it the moment you walk away. So it'd be like walking past the mirror, taking time to really look and seeing you got a ketchup stain on the left side of your face, and then walking out the door to a job interview and doing nothing about it, or going out the door to your first date, or something similar to that. It's a ridiculous kind of a situation. It's even more ridiculous when you consider the fact that in ancient times, mirrors were already very difficult to use. We have a very polished mirror system that has a very clear reflection. In ancient times, we're talking about uh, burnished bronze, polished bronze. So you had to look carefully to see what was going on. He then contrasts this with a man who inquires closely or examines God's word and perseveres until sanctification is a result. So we're talking about uh, the word is to stoop, basically someone who pours over the word of God, right? They get right down in it. So this is the comparison. A person who does the first thing would be ridiculous if they didn't take effect. The second instance is now showing us what we should be doing in relation to this pouring over. And it says we should persevere and we should not be hearers who forget but doers who act, right? So we're not talking about forgetful hearers who hear in one ear and out the other. That's not what we're talking about. Instead, we're talking about people who hear. Hearing's not the problem. It's hearing and doing. This calls to mind uh, the parable that Jesus tells. I suppose it's not really a parable, but the, the statement Jesus makes that the person who hears his word and does not do it is like a foolish man who builds their house on the sand. And the person who hears and does it is like the wise man who builds their house on the rock. Right? So it's the, again, it's the shared linguistic kind of wisdom literature that we see coming back again and again. The idea is that a person who's confronted with the word of God, which is useful and profitable for correction, teaching, reproof, all of these things, it's sufficient to equip the man of God for every good work. Everything we need to live a life of righteousness and godliness and blessings to persevere until the end is in this book. And if we don't look into it closely, if we don't examine what we're hearing in the sermons, if we don't spend time meditating and considering this, then we're like the idiot who has ketchup on his face and sees it, but doesn't do anything about it. That's a pretty silly picture. If you ask me, I don't want to be that guy. So James closes out this section by giving us um, some examples of what it means now to do the word. So he's talked to us about receiving the word. He's given us a command, an example of what, it, what the person is like that doesn't do the word and what the person's like that does do the word. And he moves on to now, how do we demonstrate the word? If you look in verse uh, 126, there's a conditional statement. In Greek, there are ways to say a conditional statement that implies that the condition is true. It's called a first-class conditional. So it'd be something like saying, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, and there most certainly is someone like that, this person's religious is worthless. religion is worthless. Religion here is referring to the external activities of the faith. 
coming to church, taking communion, doing, uh, getting baptized, reading your Bible, the external things of the faith. If someone thinks that they're religious, and someone most certainly does, but they don't bridle their tongue and instead deceive themselves, that person's external trappings of religion is worthless. Essentially, he's saying the word worthless here is the word vanity. And in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people often talked about uh, idols as being vanities. And in the Old Testament, one of the common themes you run into is you become what you worship. So Isaiah talks about the stupid, dumb person who carves a piece of wood. Part of it, they cook their food over. Part of it, they make a God out of. And then they're like, why aren't you saving me? Well, you made that God. Just like that's a stupid, dumb idol. You're now a stupid, dumb person. Another picture of idolatry is this emptiness, vanity. Those who worship vain things themselves become vain. That's what he's saying is worthless. If you are the person who looks into the word of God and does not do what it says, you are exercising worthless, empty religion, and it will result in you being worthless and empty in terms of spiritual matters. It's a strong statement, but that's what James is saying. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you think you are religious, if you have all the external trappings of piety, if your internal life does not reflect this change, then your religion is a form of self-worship. You're worshiping yourself and nothing will come out of it except destruction. Now we kind of have this like instinctive bristling up against the word religion. Uh, there's a lot of historical reasons for it, but there's a movement that lots, likes to talk about uh, Christianity as a relationship, not a religion. I'm sure we've all heard that. And there's a certain level of truth in it. If what's being said is that Christianity is not empty rituals devoid of any sort of meaningful relationship with God. Amen. Preach it, brother. If what it means is that there's no ritualistic element to our faith, it couldn't be further from the truth. The law of God, which we, we talked about when we went through the Ten Commandments last summer, the law of God is binding on Christians. All ten of the commandments are still in force. I'm not allowed to kill anyone any more than I'm allowed to um, take the Lord's name in vain, any more than I'm allowed to ignore my obligations to worship the Lord on the Lord's day. All of those things are still in force. So this idea that you can have religion and relationship totally separate from each other, that you can have a relationship with God or with Jesus and not have the religious elements is a, a false dilemma. In reality, trying to say you have a relationship with Christ without a religion, that is without the legal obligations and external practices, is like saying you can have a husband or a wife without an obligation to forsake adultery. All religion or all relationships have obligations and stipulations attached to them. When you have a relationship with someone, whether it's a friend or your spouse or your employer, there are expectations and there are rules. And that's what creates the relationship in a lot of ways. And this is no different. And so it's not the external trappings that James is arguing against. It's the external trappings apart from the actual relationship. He closes out this section by giving us two practical examples of the people who are forgetful hearers and those who are active doers. So he gives us the first example. He says, the religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. Now, sometimes in, in our current world, this is uh, taken to an extreme that I don't think should be. 
Um, there's a there's a movement called the social justice movement that sort of focuses everything about the gospel on these social issues. It's all about um, taking care of the poor. It's all about racial reconciliation. It's all about social justice. Those are good things. Do those things. James will have a lot of things to say about those things, but that's not exactly what he's saying here. He's saying that uh, a person who uh, is genuinely practicing a religion that God sees as pure and true will do these things because they live a transformed life. A person who loves Jesus will love the things Jesus loves. That includes widows and orphans. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. And this is not just these two people. It's not like you can go serve, you know, at a, a soup kitchen for women who've lost their husband and then go, go serve as a foster parent and take care of kids who don't have stable parent situations and consider this fulfilled. Widows and orphans throughout the whole Bible are stand-ins for the most needy of all people. So it doesn't have to be a widow or an orphan. It could be someone that you know in the community who uh, is suffering from food insecurity. It could be that single mother that you know who um, isn't a widow and her kid's not an orphan, but can't find formula right now. So that's not saying every one of you has to go out and scour the internet and find formula, although if you want to, we'll take donations. Um, I'm just kidding. We're, we're, we're more than set. But it's not saying that you have to do those things today. It's saying that if you have no desire to help people whatsoever, you have no desire to live a self-sacrificial life that serves the good of those around you, as one of our memory verses a couple years ago reminds us, first the people of God, first those who are members of the household of faith, and then everyone else, right? We work in these concentric circles. If you're devoid of that desire, you're devoid of the Holy Spirit. Plain and simple. A person who is living the new life that the Holy Spirit gives with that Holy Spirit living within them will have a desire to do these things. Now, sometimes we don't perceive that desire. Sometimes that desire is part of what the Holy Spirit is growing in us. But if you think about that and go, that's just the worst thing. I can't imagine doing that. You have some serious questions to ask yourself about what kind of soil you are. You have some serious questions about whether you're producing the thorns and thistles of discompassion of a hard heart or whether you're reaping the crops of compassion and love and generosity. So that's an external thing. The next example is a more general one, but is an internal thing. He says, also to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now we're going to talk about what it means to be unstained from the world in the rest of the letter. So we won't spend a lot of time here, but these are the two things he's talking about. These are the two examples he gives us of someone who has a religion that is pure and spotless before God, the father might be better to translate that our God and Father. It's not just talking about the Father. It's talking about the whole Trinity as a fatherly God. What's pure and undefiled before our God is to care for those around us externally and to remain pure internally, to remain and grow in sanctification internally. To put it another way, it's to let the new life do what new life does. New life grows. New life produces life. That's the nature of life. If you look at these trees out here, there are trees that have lots and lots of leaves. There are trees that have almost none. Which ones are you worried about falling over and landing on your car? Probably not the ones that have lots of trees. Probably the ones that don't have any trees because they're dead and they're rotten inside. And it's just a matter of time before they collapse under their own weight. That's what James says is worthless religion. That's what vanity is. 
It's collapsing under the own, the own weight of your sinfulness because there's nothing vibrant inside. So we'll get into specifics about how this plays out in real life in the coming weeks. Um, we'll get into some specifics next week, so you won't have to wait too long, and then we'll get back into them uh, in July when I have another opportunity. But what I want you to take away from today's sermon is to, to go home and to think hard about this. Have I received the word with meekness? Am I faithfully and diligently attending to the means of grace? Am I in the Lord's service on the Lord's day? Am I, am I examining myself and partaking of the Lord's supper in a worthy fashion? Am I remembering my baptism and, and all of what that means? Am I improving my baptism to use that sort of old Puritan language? If you're not, then you have to ask some hard questions because if you haven't received the word with meekness, it's not a good place to be in. I'm confident, just like the, the author of the book of Hebrews says in the, the next section, he's confident uh, that we speak of better things for the people in the congregation. I'm confident and I speak of better things, but we all have to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. That's an ongoing practice we need to, to do. So let's start. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God who has given your people many, many gifts. And one of the gifts that often goes overlooked and underappreciated is your word and especially the preaching of your word. So today, let the words that I've shared, uh, if they are from you and if they are in accord with your revelation, let them land heavy on our hearts and to change us. Let them be a double-edged sword that cuts both ways and divides between spirit and marrow. Lord, and if they are not of you and if they are not uh, in accord with your revelation, then let them be forgotten. But Lord, help us to leave this place and to examine ourselves. And if we are in the faith, help us to find that assurance that comes with your spirit and to live a life worthy of that calling and worthy of the gospel. And if we're not sure, Lord, help us to make our calling and election sure and diligent. Praise you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.